Hey guys, my name is John Trapp. I'm the campus minister here at RUF uh, here at Texas, and uh, we're really glad you're here. So welcome. Um, you know, RUF is a place where we believe in the good news of Jesus. We, we think that the gospel is its news. It's not advice about how to um, be a good person to convince God to like you, but it's actually news about what God has done for bad people, uh, for people who don't deserve his grace. So we're all on the same boat here. Uh, we're all in need of his grace. And if you're here trying to figure out if you believe or if you even want to consider believing, or, uh, or if you are someone who's trying to grow in your faith and you are a Christian, um, no matter where you are, we're, we're all in the same boat in terms of needing God's grace. And so uh, when we come together and look at God's word, um, what I hope that you'll find is that he is one who is very ready to give his grace. So we're gonna pre- I'm going to preach, uh, continue in our series on the book of Revelation. And uh, this, this chapter talks about a lion, and I've been thinking about lions this week, and it reminded me of when I took my family to the zoo, the Austin Zoo. Who's been to the Austin Zoo? Anybody been to the Austin Zoo? It's like the most Austin thing ever. You go there, and like all the animals have been rescued from bad situations, and there's like free-roaming peacocks that aren't even in cages, and it's really awesome. You should go. But one of the things that's kind of almost disturbing about the Austin Zoo is it's, it's very low-key, just in the sense of, like, the fencing is not that impressive, you know? Like, you don't feel super safe when you're near the large animals. And they have these massive, this one massive male, like, alpha lion there. And so we take my family, at this time, my son, Owen, he's our oldest, he's like four years old, and my family come to visit for Thanksgiving. We all, all the traps go, and we go down to where the alpha male lion is. And Owen, at this point, is like over the zoo, and he just wants to eat his goldfish. So we hand him his goldfish, and he's focused on his goldfish cup, and he's just eating. And we're looking at the lion, and on, if you've been to the Austin Zoo, you'll, you'll know this. On the cage, there's a sign that says, caution, I spray. S-P-R-A-Y. It's like, the lion sprays. We're not really paying attention to this at all. Like, whatever, that's kind of interesting. So look, Here's the thing, the lion, like I said, it's in, a, it's in like a chain link fence. And it's literally, there's like a barricade that's like four feet from the cha- chain link fence, and then it's just like the lion. Like you could literally could reach out and put your finger through and like touch its fur. And I would not recommend doing that. And so the lion comes right over to where we are, and it starts like going back and forth, like, next to the cage and like rubbing its skin like a big cat you know like up against the cage and then before we know it it has turned around and its tail just goes straight up in the air like this and everyone like registers with the sign you know and thinks about the sign and so the whole crowd of people who had gathered there just scatter except for the little four-year-old boy who's focused on his goldfish. And he's just sitting there and eating his goldfish. And this spray emits out of the backside of this lion. And I'm not kidding you, this like jet stream spray whizzes right past his head and goes past him and doesn't touch him at all. And everyone else has run away. And Owen 
is completely unaware and is just sitting there eating his goldfish, and we're all dying laughing at this point. I mean, if, it, if he had been like six inches to the right, the day is ruined, and we're going home for a shower for like three days. And as I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, um, the thing about our lives, and even have been reckoning with how fragile our lives are in the last couple of weeks, and, and, and I can't help but think, how many times must we be like Owen? Just focused on whatever it is that's right in front of us, when things that like are really scary or dangerous or horrific kind of whiz past us and we don't even recognize that that's happening. But the reality that the Christians in the first century living in Rome face is that, that they, had, they were past that point of, like, of kind of being unaware of the horrific nature of life sometimes and things just kind of whizzing past them, and they were running smack into hardship and persecution and suffering. And so... Uh, we're going to look at this passage, but before we do, let me pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll dive in. Father, I thank you for the truth of the gospel, and I pray that you would open our eyes to it tonight, and that we would see that you are a God who meets us in our suffering. And I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want you, before I read this passage in Revelation 5, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a first century Christian, Okay. Let's say you're living somewhere, one of the original um, recipients of this would have been the church in Smyrna, which is in modern-day Turkey, okay? So imagine you're living in modern-day Turkey, and you have come to believe in the resurrection of a man who is from Nazareth, from a land far away from you, but you've heard from eyewitness testimony about people who claim to have seen him resurrected, and you are con- you've been convinced, because so many people are beginning to follow this man. And not only are they following him, but when they follow him, their lives radically change. New, New Testament scholars and early his, uh, ancient historians, Christian and non-Christian, will say that one of the reasons that Christianity kind of exploded in the first century in terms of its growth was it was so different from the surrounding culture. For instance, in, in the first century, if you lived in Rome, you were very likely very free with your body and your sexuality, and you were very guarded with your money. And then these Christians come along. This new religious movement comes along, and it's the exact opposite. You've got these people who are very, very guarded and strict about how they use their bodies and their own sexuality, and yet they're incredibly free with their money incredibly generous with their money. One of the things that, uh, that early historians, ancient historians have noted is that Christians were known for, the, if, if you had a baby and you didn't want the baby back then, um, you wouldn't, it, abortion was much more dangerous and very rare during that day. So what you would do is you would have the baby and you would leave the baby in the city dump. And all throughout these cities, all of a sudden these Christians started showing up at the dump and taking babies home with them and adopting them. And so imagine you're this first century Christian and you're, 
your, your lifestyle is totally different from the people around you, and you're trying to do these good things, not, not because you think you have to earn God's favor, but because you think you have it. You think you've been adopted into his family, so you see someone else who has been left alone, and you see yourself in that child, and so you go adopt that child. That's you. And then the day comes when the person that you love is taken away from you by Rome. And all of the stories that you've been hearing and all the things that you've been worried about comes true because the person that you love is being taken away by Rome and they're being brought to the Colosseum. That's the reality that first century Christians who get this letter are dealing with. That's their life. And here's the question that I would imagine that I would be asking in that situation. And that maybe you're, you, maybe you're even asking this question now. Is it worth it? Is following Jesus worth all this? Like, does he even have a plan? And now imagine getting these words from John, this letter sent. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is God's word to us. Look, I want you to see three things. First, I want you to see how this text deals with the problem of suffering. So the problem of suffering. Second, God's response to suffering. And third, so what? So the problem of suffering, God's response, and so what? So first off, the problem of suffering. If you're a first century Christian, or if you're a 21st century human, you, you have to, you, you deal with this every day the reality that this world is broken. 
and that there is suffering and evil in this world. I mean, I, just you flip on the news for a second and you see what happened in Florida at that high school. Or you see what that doctor did to those girls who were on the U.S. gymnastic team. Or maybe, maybe the evil of this world or the suffering of this world is a little closer to you. Like, I know that there are people in this room right now who have recently lost someone that, they're, that, that they love and that they care about. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, like, God, what are you doing? Are you going to do anything about this? Are you going to do anything about the pain that I'm feeling or the pain that that family is feeling? Are you going to do anything about the evil of death? That it's wrong? God, are you going to do anything about the evil of the slave trade industry, of human trafficking? And what I want you to see in this passage is that there is something that is seen here. And again, we've talked about this in Revelation. That Revelation is it's harkening back to a lot of Old Testament imagery. And it's using, pic- it's, I know it's words, but it's painting a picture for us to think about and see, like, what is God's response to this situation that these Christians are in and that we're in now? And there's this scroll that is in the hand of the one who is seated on the throne, and it's got writing all over it. It's got writing on the back, it's got writing on the inside, and it sounds like a scroll. There's a scroll like this in the book of Ezekiel. There's a scroll like this in Daniel chapter 12, which is another prophecy. And those, the scrolls are, what's contained in those scrolls are God's purposes for the world and what he's going to do about the wrong in the world. And namely, that he is going to judge the things that are evil and wrong that cause suffering and brokenness in this world. Like he's going to do something about it. But do you see, you see what the problem is? Because John sees that scroll and he knows what it's for, but there's a problem. There's no one worthy to open it. You've got this angelic voice that calls out in the middle of, this th- of the throne room of God where, where this picture is being set. And he says, who can open this? Who can open the seals? And there's no one. Angels who haven't sinned. These four living creatures that we talked about last week that are like amazing and incredible. They're not worthy to open the seals. And did you see what John begins to do? He begins, look at verse 4. I began to weep loudly. I hope, I hope that if you if you're sitting here and maybe you're, maybe you're resonating with what I'm saying about like, why would God allow this to happen? Like, there has to be an answer. If you feel that in your gut, like there has to be a reason why this stuff happens, why awful things happen in this world. That John is looking at this scroll and he's, and he's saying, 
if there's no reason, if that can't be opened, if we can never know, then what are we doing? If all this is for naught, then what are we doing? And he begins to weep at the meaninglessness of it. And maybe you are feeling that, like, is, is, this, is my friend's death meaningless? Is my suffering meaningless? What are you doing, God? And here's the thing. Um, something needs to be done about that. And what's inside the scrolls, something needs to be done about evil and suffering, but what's inside the scrolls is that God is going to judge them. He's, God is going to bring vindication and judgment and justice for all the wrong things in this world. And maybe that, that might sit funny with you to think about God being a God of justice and even wrath against evil. But I want you to listen to what, this is um, a quote from a man named Miroslav Volf. He grew up in Croatia. He's now, he's a professor of theology at Yale. And um, listen to what he says about the reason he can be a peaceful person. He says this, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires, requires a belief in divine vengeance. And then he admits, my thesis will be unpopular with man in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have. Think about where he's from. He's from Eastern Europe. Imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that would not be a God worthy of worship. And then he goes on to say, it takes only the calm and the peacefulness of growing up in the suburbs to ever believe that God would not be a God of vengeance. Something needs to be done, but there's just one problem with that. There's just one problem with that. I'll illustrate it this way. I feel like every, every, any kid who's grown up in a home that prays some has had this moment happen to them. I see it happen at the trap house. You say, okay, we're going to pray for the food now. And everyone closes their eyes. We're going to bow. We're going to bless the food. We're going to ask God to bless the food. And you say the prayer, and you pray the prayer. And then you say, in Jesus' name, amen. And you open your eyes. And then your oldest kid points at the next youngest kid. Owen pointing at Lucy. Lucy had her eyes open, Dad. What's the next question I'm about to ask Owen? How do you know? And I remember, like, it, uh, he thought I was like a Jedi when I asked him that question. <laughs> like, <laughs> he, like, did not piece that together. Because he's asking for judgment on this, but the problem is he's guilty, too. And that's, that's the, what's scary about these, these seals being opened. Because we want, if we want for something to be done about the evil in the world, the problem is we are the problem. We're part of the problem. That we, we are 
cheaters and liars and we're apathetic about people in need. We just don't care about people in need. We, we take part in things that we're even addicted to that, like, like the, the porn industry, that m- uh, many of the people who are, who are on that television screen or that computer screen are doing it not because they want to, but because they're, they've been trafficked and they're slaves. And our consumption of that is feeding that industry. We're guilty. Every single one of us is guilty. And for God to open up those scrolls and to have not made a provision for us would be our doom. But I want you to see what God's response is. What God's response is even to John weeping and saying, who is worthy to open these scrolls? Do you see what the elder says? He he pipes up and he says, behold, verse 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is referring all the way back to Genesis 49, the first first book in the Bible, this this messianic prophecy that there would be one who would come from the line of Judah, one of the brothers of of, um, Joseph, one of the children of Jacob, that there would be this one from Judah and he, the scepter would not pass from him, that he would rule. And he would be like a lion, powerful and mighty, the king. And so the elder says, there's one who can open it. Behold, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so you expect to look and see a lion, but what does he see? Do you see it? He says, look, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but instead... John looks for a lion, and he finds a lamb. Not like a sheep, but like a, have you seen a lamb? Like, they're like in petting zoos. They're tiny. Like something that a seven-year-old could pick up and hold. And it's this little lamb, and it's been slain. Just like like a, a sacrificial lamb that you would take if you, were, if you were growing up, like many of these people did, if you were growing up in the Jewish community, you would take that lamb, you would give it to the priest, and he would slit its throat to pay for your sins. That lamb would pay for your sins so that you could have communion with God and a relationship with God. And here is what is mind-boggling about this picture. That in the throne room of God, the one who is getting all the worship and all the praise and all the honor and is called the lion, he reveals himself as a weak, slain lamb. This imagery is incredible. It harkens all the way back to Genesis 22 when Abraham is told to go and sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. And Abraham goes, and he's about to lay his son on the wood to sacrifice him. And Isaac says, Father, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb that we're going to sacrifice? And Abraham says this, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And if you know the story, Isaac is spared and God does provide. He provides the lamb to be slain. But that story in Genesis 22 is pointing forward to the grand story. 
It's why when John the Baptist sees Jesus Christ for the first time in the book of John, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what is so upside down and crazy about what Christianity is claiming. And it's this, that God, in his response to the evil and suffering in this world, is not to explain it away. He doesn't send a theological treatise about why we should understand it and wrap our minds around it. He enters into it for you. There was a woman named Stephanie Decker. She lived in Henryville, Indiana. And in 2012, tornadoes were coming into Henryville and were ripping through the town. And she only had a few moments to go downstairs into the basement with her two children. So she grabbed the two of them, ran to the basement as the tornado is coming towards her house. She throws a a sheet over them, but then realizes that's not going to help very much if a tornado topples our house over. So Stephanie puts her body on top of her two small children, and the tornado comes through, and it rips the house down. And Stephanie recounts that she began to feel parts of the ceiling hit her back, and then bigger pieces of the house and bricks hit her back, and seven ribs were broken. And not only that, but two steel beams came crashing down from her house and severed her legs. And when they pulled her out of the rubble, they pulled a mother who was on top of these two completely unscathed children, safe underneath the mother. She survived, but her body was wounded for the rest of her life. And what the gospel is saying is this, that God did need to give divine judgment on the wrong parts of this world, including us. But the one that he brought his judgment down upon for his people was himself. He entered into the story and brought the divine judgment down upon himself on the cross that Jesus became the lamb who was slain so that your suffering could end. So that the evil that we do and that I do could be paid for. Look, here's the thing. I know, I know that this does not explain everything about the problem of evil and suffering in the world. It doesn't. But what what I think Christianity does do is it proves itself trustworthy. It pro- Jesus proves himself worthy of our trust. And listen, I, Nicholas Wasterstorff, who um, is a philosophy professor at Harvard and Yale and Princeton, he's been a traveling professor, he's really smart. Listen to what he says. He wrote a book called Lament for a Son. And he wrote this after his 25-year-old son, not much older than y'all, 25-year-old son died in a mo- mountain climbing accident. In his book, Lament for a Son, is him processing that grief. Listen to what he says. To redeem our brokenness and lovelessness, 
our lovelessness, the fact that we don't love, to redeem our brokenness and our lovelessness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power. Instead, he sent his beloved son to suffer like us. Through his suffering, to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. That makes him trustworthy. This is, this is what makes Christianity different from the other religions. Do you know that? The, the Bible claims that God doesn't stay on the sidelines and explain why suffering exists. He enters into it to take it away. To pay for the evil in this world and the evil inside of us. So what? Last point. Here's the thing. This proves that he is worthy. He's worthy of your trust and he's worthy of your worship. The, the word worthy is littered through this whole passage. In, in, in verse 2, the big, the big question, who is worthy to open the scroll? Verse 9, when the lamb is seen as worthy, they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Verse 12, worthy is the lamb. Why is he worthy? Look at verse 9 and 12. Why is he worthy? Because he was slain. That makes him worthy. Because he put on his life on the line for you, you can trust him and follow him. And our response to his worthiness must be our worship. Even the word, the word worship comes from the old English word worship. That worship is ascribing worth and value to something. And here's the thing. This whole, after verse 8 happens, after the lamb through, comes and reveals himself as the one able to take the scroll and open its seals because he is the one who has taken God's divine judgment. He is the one who is slain. After he does that, the whole rest of the, of the chapter is a worship scene. Ver, from verse 8 all the way through the rest of the passage, everyone just starts singing and praising and worshiping because he is worthy. And here, look, you, worship might sound boring to you. When I was a kid and my mom told me, like, we're going to worship for eternity in heaven, I was like, no! Church for eternity? You love worshiping. But we worship differently. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. The closest thing to the worship service that you see in this passage, for, in the secular world, and there's kind of like the world, the closest thing are, is concerts and sporting events. Think about what happens at a concert and a sporting event. There's a liturgy. Everyone stands up at the same time. We have call and response. There's, there's cheers that everyone knows and everyone says at the same time. And because everyone's saying them and everyone's singing them at the same time, it makes them better. There's rejoicing together over the one that is being admired. Y'all, I got to go to game two of the Indians-Yankees um, playoff game this past year. And I know none of y'all care about Cleveland Indians baseball, but we love it. And when Francisco Lindor hit a grand slam to bring them within one run, 
I literally screamed so hard that I almost passed out. Like, I got lightheaded and had to kind of, like, get back onto the chair and, like, catch my breath for a second, and then I stood up and kept screaming. Because it was awesome. Like, when, Notre, when we beat Notre Dame two years ago, and we thought Notre Dame was good at the time, and, like, everyone was walking around campus with their chests puffed out, and, like, we're back, baby. Like, Texas football is back. And it was so awesome. And I remember talking to, actually, one of your dads. I saw him at Medici the next day. And this guy's been going to Texas football games for, like, 40 years. He was like, listen, that wasn't the biggest game in Texas football history, but that was the most electric I've ever seen that stadium. And it was awesome. We love that. Because we're made for it. And that's the scene that you see in this passage. Did you see, like, who is even praising him? He says, creatures all over the earth and under the earth and in the sea. So, like, whales and seahorses and moles and worms and snakes and birds and eagles and flamingos. Like, they're all singing because he's worthy. Because he made them. And he's going to make it all right again. And he's worthy of your belief and your worship because he paid for you. And all he asks is that you believe. That you have put your trust in him. Because, you know what? Nothing else is worthy of your trust because it can't, it's not, it fades. Billy Graham who passed today, said this. He says, I've read the last page of the Bible, and it's all going to turn out all right. That's why he's worthy. Read the last page of the Bible. That's what we see in Revelation 21. Do you know what the last page of the Bible says? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Reverend Graham, I don't know if I just broke news to you, he passed away today. He died today. He is in this room now. And beholding it. And it's offered to you too. Your suffering and your labor is not in vain. So believe in him. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that it is by the blood of your Son that you have ransomed us, and we pray and ask that you would help us to believe in that and to rest in the reality of that and to trust in your grace and your kindness and your goodness. Even when we can't understand it, um, I pray that you would help us to see in, uh, that you are trustworthy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all, let's stand and sing one last song.